Welcome to Above Avalon. This is episode 158, Forced to Sell. Hi, I'm Neil. As part of covering Apple at Above Avalon, I keep track of a number of other companies. Some of these companies may be Apple competitors. Others are simply playing in the same industries as Apple. Fitbit is a great example of one of these other companies. Over the years, I have been following Fitbit in the daily updates, going over all of the quarterly earnings from this company. I've gone over all the ups and downs, and to be honest, more recently, there have been more downs than ups. It's safe to say that the Fitbit story will soon be ending. Google has offered to acquire Fitbit for $2.1 billion. In today's episode, we are going to talk about that offer. In particular, we are going to focus on why Fitbit decided to sell itself. How did this company, once labeled the wearables leader, run out of options as an independent company? I think our answer is found with Apple Watch. Saying that a company with an agreement to be acquired for $2.1 billion was in some way killed may sound like an exaggeration. I'm sure many startups aim to one day be killed in such fashion. However, Google's decision to acquire Fitbit amounts to a mercy kill. Google is putting an official end to Fitbit's implosion at the hands of Apple Watch. In just three years, it was the Apple Watch that turned Fitbit from a household name as the wearables industry leader into a company that's going to have a hard time being remembered when the wearable story is retold to future generations. We'll begin today's episode by talking a little bit about Google's offer. When news first broke that Google had offered to acquire Fitbit for $2.1 billion, or $7.35 per share, many people noted how low the offer price was. They were looking at Fitbit's previous valuations. This is a company that had its initial public offering at a $4.1 billion valuation. When you look at this peak stock price, it was a $13 billion valuation, $51.90 per share. The thing is, when I heard this offer, my initial reaction was that Google was being extremely generous with its offer. On an enterprise value basis, that excludes the $565 million of cash and cash equivalents on Fitbit's balance sheet. Google is valuing Fitbit at $1.5 billion. This is a hardware company with $1.5 billion of annual revenue, yet average selling prices are declining, margins are declining, the intellectual property portfolio is questionable, the ecosystem is dying, And, well, Fitbit has a non-existent product strategy. In my view, when you add up all those pieces, Google looks to be overpaying for Fitbit. How is that possible? Why is Google doing that? Some industry observers speculate that Google's offer price has to reflect the company seeing something in Fitbit that the market missed. More than a few people went around saying that Google is acquiring Fitbit for the data. I don't think so. Instead, Google's generous offer price has the makings of being a goodwill gesture aimed directly at Fitbit employees who have wealth tied to Fitbit stock price. 
The 735 per share offer price represents close to a three-year high in Fitbit stock price. Holding Fitbit's feet to the fire in terms of valuation wouldn't have helped Google retain Fitbit employees for beefing up its fledging hardware team. On the flip side, there are some people who deserve a round of applause for securing such a generous offer from Google. That's Fitbit co-founder and CEO James Park and the Fitbit board. This acquisition can be viewed as Google offering Fitbit a dignified and gracious death, and Fitbit's board is correct to take the opportunity. Now, when it comes to telling the Fitbit story, I think this is one area where it helps having tracked Fitbit on a quarterly basis for years. There are two chapters to Fitbit's life as an independent company. From 2013 to 2016, Fitbit leveraged low-cost, relatively rudimentary fitness tracker bracelets worn on the wrist to consolidate what had been a fragmented market for quantifying one's physical movement. And what is an incredibly difficult thing for a hardware company to do, Fitbit even managed to move into the realm of coolness. There was a period when wearing a Fitbit in public contained positive connotations as the user was viewed as being on the forefront of technology. I think the smartphone revolution also played a role in Fitbit's rise. People became comfortable giving a new crop of mobile devices an increasing number of roles to handle. When we go over the Fitbit story, there really is some remarkable things here. Park successfully navigated Fitbit through a tumultuous period, we had the Fitbit Force recall. So this was the wearable that caused skin rashes and burns on nearly 10,000 people. For many hardware companies, that would have been it. There wouldn't have been a future after that incident. Fitbit survived. And we can argue that Fitbit actually peaked after that incident. So that, that wasn't the peak of Fitbit. Fitbit went on to do even bigger things after that recall. Another amazing thing that Park did at Fitbit was compete effectively against all the other early wearables pioneers. We can point to Fitbit's ugly battle with the well-funded jawbone regarding intellectual property theft. That battle ended in a settlement. When you add everything together, Fitbit did a lot of things right during this period to become a household name for health and fitness tracking. Everything changed in 2016. Fitbit's unit sales peaked. Over at AboveAvalon.com in this week's article titled Apple Watch Forced Fitbit to Sell Itself, I have Exhibit 1, which has Fitbit unit sales on an annual basis. The numbers peaked in 2016 at 22.3 million Fitbit trackers sold. When you then look at the subsequent decline in unit sales, things may not look that bad. It looks like demand stabilized somewhere around 14 to 15 million units in 2017 and 2018. Prior to news of Google offering to acquire Fitbit, it looked like the company was trending around 15 to 16 million for 2019. Now that number is completely off the table as one would assume 
Fitbit sales are not going to be that great during the holiday season. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a couple of minutes. So on the surface, someone may look at this unit sales chart and say, okay, well, unit sales fell about 30% from a peak of 22 million units to somewhere around 15 million units. Maybe that's not that bad. Here's the thing. For a hardware company dependent on rising unit sales, any decline would set off the alarm bells. You have a company that R&D, marketing, it's dependent on unit sales continuing to go up. It's very difficult to eat a 30% decline in unit sales, even if it stabilizes in a couple years. Once again, there is evidence of Fitbit management doing the right thing. They quickly cut expenses at the first sign of demand weakness. The belief was that Fitbit could manage its way out of the sales slump. However, there was something else at play here. By quickly cutting expenses, management was buying itself time. They were giving Fitbit some oxygen to continue throwing, I'm going to say pasta, (laughs) against the wall and see what sticks. And that was a recurring theme in the past few years, where you had a company just pivot, 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 trying to figure out how to succeed, how to find sustainability as essentially still a hardware company. At this point, some of you may be saying, wow, Fitbit actually sounded like a pretty great company. How did it go so wrong? It seems like they were doing everything right. Not quite. What management did not realize at the time was that Fitbit was beginning to feel the consequences of one giant mistake that James Park had made years earlier. Park did not foresee the fundamental change that would take place on the wrist in the form of dedicated fitness trackers turning into full-fledged computers. Smartwatches aren't just glorified fitness trackers. Instead, smartwatches are alternatives to smartphones and tablets. Many of you likely recall my previous discussion on the difference between alternatives and replacements. As a quick refresher, a product is designed to be an alternative to another product when it handles some of the roles given to that other product. We can look at an cellular Apple Watch compared to an iPhone or iPad. A cellular Apple Watch is not designed to handle every single role that we give to an iPhone or an iPad. For example, an Apple Watch still doesn't have a camera. And so what that tells us is the Apple Watch, as of today, is not designed to be a replacement for an iPhone or iPad. Instead, it's designed to be an alternative. It can handle certain roles, certain tasks that we used to give iPhones or iPads. For some people, that cellular Apple Watch goes a really long way in terms of handling their computing needs. After dragging his feet for far too long, Park knew that the only way forward for Fitbit would be to come out with a smartwatch. With the $300 Ionic, Fitbit launched its first smartwatch in 2017. The device flopped. Fitbit then pivoted to a lower-cost smartwatch 
with the $200 Versa. In the early days of that product, it seemed like Fitbit may have been onto something, but it was just a head fake. What ended up happening was Fitbit established channel inventory. They satisfied pent-up demand for the Versa in its existing install base, and then that was it. Demand evaporated. Despite an even lower price, the Versa has failed to catch in the marketplace. Earlier this year, Fitbit pivoted yet again, this time into paid services. So in an effort to grab more users who could be monetized via these paid services, Fitbit management began to cut into hardware pricing and margins. My initial reaction to seeing this unfold, again, you could watch this through their quarterly earnings reports. I knew that Fitbit really didn't have too many more pivots left in it. It, this seemed to be it. It seemed to be Fitbit management acknowledging they just didn't have much room left to be a hardware company. And as it turns out, it, it really was sort of Fitbit management waving the white flag. The situation looked dire. You're heading into the all-important 2019 holiday season for a company like Fitbit. Those two to three months right around now to early January it is so crucial. And it just did not seem like they had the product line in a position where they're going to have a successful season. Enter Google last week to officially put Fitbit out of its misery by offering to acquire the company. The only alternative for Fitbit, which was far from unproven, would be for the company to become much smaller, essentially become a shell of its former self in order to sell a small number of dedicated fitness trackers each year. The install base would decline. I don't think there's any question about that. But maybe they could have gotten enough sales in the door where they could at least keep the lights on for a little bit. Again, I think it's a stretch. Even if successful, Fitbit would have looked and acted like nothing that the world had come to know Fitbit as. They would not be a leader in the wearables category. Instead, Fitbit would become some type of zombie company. So I do think it's correct to say that Fitbit really did run out of options and an acquisition was the best case scenario. This brings up a couple of questions. How did Fitbit go from being considered the wearables leader to viewing a $2.1 billion acquisition as its best hope for shareholders to recoup any value. What led Fitbit to run out of options as an independent company? Two words, Apple Watch. One question that a lot of people had with Fitbit over the years was if this company was actually competing with Apple Watch. A lot of people said, well, Fitbit is selling devices that have an average selling price closer to $100. Apple Watch is closer to $400. They're two different product categories targeting two different user bases. My opinion when it came to competition is you have to think about it in terms of real estate. If you have two products that are aiming to grab real estate on the wrist, they are in one way or another competing against each other. 
it might not be the traditional form of competition where you have a consumer going into a store and in one hand they have a $100 Fitbit and the other hand they have a $400 Apple Watch and they're weighing which one should they go with. It may not have been like that. Yet there is no question that if a device is occupying that precious, valuable real estate on the wrist, well, in one way or another, that real estate is not going to an Apple Watch. When it came to this Apple versus Fitbit dynamic, Apple didn't just steal customers away from Fitbit. That's not Fitbit's problem. That's not why Fitbit's selling itself. In such a scenario, Fitbit may actually have had a chance to survive because the company could have had a means to respond competitively. Apple ended up doing something that ultimately proved far worse for Fitbit. The Apple Watch altered the fundamentals underpinning the wrist wearables industry. This left Fitbit unable to remain relevant in a rapidly changing marketplace. Apple placed a bet that wrist real estate was being undervalued. The Swiss had dropped the ball. They were primarily selling the wrist as a place for intangibles with high-end mechanical watches. Instead of following Fitbit and selling a $99 dedicated fitness tracker, Apple looked at the wrist as being a great place for additional utility, beyond just telling time or tracking one's fitness and health. Apple turned health and fitness tracking from a business into a feature. The Apple Watch redefined utility on the wrist. That change led to consumers wanting more from wrist wearables. With Apple Watch, Apple established a stronghold at the premium end of the smartwatch market. Taking a page from its product strategy playbook, Apple then began to lower entry-level Apple Watch pricing. This had the impact of removing oxygen from increasingly lower price segments. Fitbit found itself squeezed. The company had no viable way to compete directly with Apple Watch. Fitbit's existing business wasn't profitable enough for management to ramp up R&D in an effort to go up against Apple. I took a look back at Fitbit's cash flow statements over the years. Fitbit had generated just $200 million of free cash flow over the past five years. Apple spends that much on R&D in a few days. Meanwhile, at the other end of the market, competition remained intense at the low end. This only added pressure to Fitbit's existing business of selling low-cost, dedicated fitness trackers. So you could see how Fitbit ended up being squeezed. This pressure manifests itself in Fitbit's install base. Exhibit 2 in this week's article highlights the number of active Fitbit users compared to the Apple Watch install base. And that means the number of people wearing an Apple Watch. And all Apple Watch figures are my estimates. The exhibit ends up being the most damning evidence of Fitbit's demise. Fitbit's install base lost all momentum just as Apple Watch began to take off. Fitbit's unit sales trends were hiding what was weakening fundamentals for Fitbit's install base. I won't go over all of the numbers, but taking a look at the number of active Fitbit users 
In 2014, there were 7 million. In 2015, that jumped to 17 million. In 2016, that moved to 23 million. So at that point, that stretch, things were looking pretty decent for Fitbit. However, since 2016, the number of active Fitbit users has only increased by 7 million. That's 30%. Those aren't great numbers for what we've seen take place in the wearables industry. We can look at the Apple Watch install base. In 2016, there were 12 million people wearing an Apple Watch. At the end of 2019, this is Apple's fiscal year 2019, the total is 63 million. So you can see in 2016, there were twice as many Fitbit users as Apple Watch users. In 2019, there are twice as many Apple Watch users as Fitbit users. It's a complete reversal. For Fitbit, 28 million active users isn't enough to sustain a thriving ecosystem. I also think there are reasons to question the loyalty and engagement found with those users, especially if you're comparing them to, say, Apple Watch users. A good argument can be made that Fitbit died a while ago, and the company is merely running on fumes from the dedicated fitness tracker glory days. With Fitbit, Google is acquiring a dying wearables platform. When we look at this combination, Fitbit and Google, there is no rational argument in support of Google buying Fitbit. Both companies lack a workable strategy in wearables. Fitbit doesn't bring anything to the table for Google. Buying a fitness and health tracker going off fumes is not a legitimate way to somehow find success in wearables. Not only did Fitbit lack a sustainable product strategy going forward, but it's fair to assume that Fitbit products will become less attractive following a Google acquisition. This goes back to our brief discussion about the upcoming holiday season. Even prior to news of Google acquiring Fitbit, I think Apple Watch was shaping up to have a really good holiday season coming up. With news of Google looking to acquire Fitbit, I think consumers are going to have some hesitation buying Fitbit devices. So maybe someone may have been in the market to upgrade a Fitbit device. They may not do that anymore. And so this is why I do think you're going to see even greater momentum flow to Apple Watch. When a services company with data capturing tools buys a dying hardware ecosystem built on tools that weren't just data capturing tools in disguise, an exodus of users is likely. Judging by how Fitbit decided to include the following paragraph in the press release announcing the acquisition, both Google and Fitbit are acknowledging this exodus risk. Quote, Consumer trust is paramount to Fitbit. Strong privacy and security guidelines have been part of Fitbit's DNA since day one. This will not change. Fitbit will continue to put users in control of their data and will remain transparent about the data it collects and why. The company never sells personal information and Fitbit health and wellness data will not be used for Google ads, end quote. Ooh, um, <laughs> that paragraph is not going to provide any comfort to Fitbit users who are concerned about their privacy in a post-Google acquisition. There is simply no way of getting around the following fact. If you're wearing a Fitbit device today and you continue to wear it in the future, you will eventually be wearing a Google device. For many of those people, they are not going to be comfortable wearing a Google device on their bodies. The thing is, 
none of this really mattered to Fitbit's board of directors when accepting Google's offer. Their concern was found with Fitbit shareholders, not Fitbit users. And what has been an odd development, many industry analysts have been going around talking up Fitbit as having a treasure trove of data for Google. And the narrative here, it concludes with Google somehow turning this data into an ingredient for success in wearables. That line of thinking makes no sense. And it's nothing more than wishful thinking. And I don't really know what is going on with some industry analysts. I don't know how you can follow the tech industry see an acquisition, and then automatically think, oh, well, this has to work out, that they must be doing this because they know it's going to work out. If you're going by history, if you're going off of historical trends, you need to be skeptical of M&A in tech. And that's if it's a good company being acquired. With Fitbit, as we've talked about over the past 25 minutes, Google is buying a dying company. You can even argue the company's already dead. I don't understand how you can turn that into, well, this is the ingredient for success for Google's wearable strategy. Google's problem in wearables isn't due to a lack of data. Google's lack of silicon expertise and dependency at Qualcomm aren't fatal issues either. Ultimately, Google's problem in wearables is that it isn't a design company. At Google, designers are not given control over the user experience. Even if Google ramps up investment in hiring, so it is one day able to ship custom silicon that is competitive with Apple, the company would still need to come up with wearables that people want to be seen wearing. These products need to be born from a design culture in which the way people use technology is given more importance than just pushing technology forward. This is the problem found with product and gadget reviews these days. Well, there's a lot of problems found with gadget reviews this is, but this is one of the major issues. There is too much focus on specs and not enough on the user experience. There's not enough on how does one use this product to get more out of technology. Instead, there's still this arms race over well, which pushes technology further. It's all wrong. And it really comes through of wearables because these products are making technology more personal in ways that we've never seen before with other gadgets. Instead of acquiring Fitbit to find success in wearables, Google should work on changing its internal culture to empower designers at the expense of engineering. However, that change isn't likely to materialize as the people who would be tasked with making such a decision would themselves hold less power and importance as a result of the change. Fitbit will serve as a case study for what happens to a company underestimating Apple's ability to redefine not just a product category, but an entire industry. Apple's culture allows it to succeed in wearables. The company has spent decades learning to make technology more personal, and those lessons are being used to establish the most formidable wearables platform in existence. Apple Watch redefined what it meant to put utility on the wrist. And Fitbit simply wasn't built to succeed in such a world. That's going to do it for today's episode. I did want to point out that in a daily update that I published a few days ago, I wrote a story titled Apple Watch's Power. And I went over why I think Fitbit selling itself is actually just the first major domino that's going to fall 
resulting from the Apple Watch redefining utility on the wrist. I don't think this is in some way a climax or the biggest event that you're going to see from Apple Watch's power. I think this is actually only the beginning. I'll include a link to that daily update in the show notes. If you enjoy the analysis and perspective found in these podcast episodes and in the weekly articles over at AboveAvalon.com and you want more of it throughout the week, I think you would be interested in Above Avalon membership. The cornerstone of membership is access to my exclusive daily updates about Apple. Daily updates are 2,000-word emails that are sent directly into your inbox throughout the week. Discussion topics include Apple business and strategy analysis, my perspective and observations on current news, Apple competitors, my Apple financial estimates, and of course, full coverage of Apple earnings, product events, and keynotes. As I mentioned at the beginning of today's episode, even though my focus is on Apple, that includes covering a number of companies that are in some way connected to Apple. And the logic behind that's pretty straightforward. Apple doesn't operate in a vacuum. They operate in industries with plenty of players, and I think it's important to keep track of those players. The difference with Above Avalon is that I always approach every topic from the perspective of Apple. That's something different that no one else really does when they focus on just the tech industry. To receive these exclusive daily updates all about Apple directly in your inbox, all you have to do is become an Above Avalon member. So head on over to AboveAvalon.com and then go to the membership page. There are two sign-up forms on that page. It's either $20 per month or $200 per year. And Apple Pay is accepted, so if you have that set up, you could probably become a member in literally a few seconds. Along with accessing the daily updates, Above Avalon membership includes other privileges and benefits, such as access to the archive. You can read daily updates previously sent to members. There is additional exclusive analysis available, such as Above Avalon reports and access to my working Apple earnings model. Those features are available to members at no additional cost. For more information and the full list of privileges and benefits, just head on over to the membership page over at AboveAvalon.com. I am proud to say that Above Avalon is fully sustained by memberships. So if you're already an Above Avalon member, thank you for your support. And if you're planning on becoming an Above Avalon member, thank you in advance. With that, I will conclude today's episode. I will talk to you all later. Bye.